good to see all of you. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it and open to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is where we'll be uh, this morning. If you uh, go to the grocery store this week to buy all of your Thanksgiving uh, materials, uh, ingredients, groceries, what's, there's the word I'm looking for, groceries, and you come to the checkout line, you look behind the checkout line in most stores, there will be a wall of little white boxes. And uh, on those boxes will be a bright warning label. It's bright to capture your attention. It says, may cause cancer. What am I talking about? What are those boxes? Now, how would y'all know that? You're right. I'm talking about those cigarette boxes may cause cancer. It's got a warning and it's got a reason for the warning, right? The whole warning is don't smoke. Why? Because it may cause cancer. A warning and a reason. Now, that is how the entire book of Colossians is set up. Colossians is a letter of warning, but it gives us a reason for the warning. Paul is writing to a church that is being inundated with a false teaching about who Jesus is. It's a teaching that seeks to diminish and demote Christ. And Paul is writing a warning not to turn from Christ, to continue with Jesus. But he gives us a, a reason for the warning. The reason is because of who Jesus is. Paul presents an image of Jesus, a picture of Jesus in all of his glory, and he says, behold him. Be captivated by his beauty so that you won't be captivated by anything less. I remember the first time I ever saw Pikes Peak in Colorado Springs. I was a kid, grew up as a flatlander in Houston, Texas, and never seen anything like it. My parents took our family on a summer vacation one time to Colorado Springs. We got to Colorado Springs on, on uh, the evening time. It was dark. Checked into uh, Motel 6 or somewhere like that. And the next morning, I uh, woke up and drew the, the, the curtains. And right out of our window was Pike's Peak. I mean, just amazing, majestic mountain. There was snow at the top in July, which was amazing. I had never seen snow before in my life growing up in Houston. But there it is on this mountain. And I just didn't want to be moved from the, from the window because it was so beautiful. I was just captivated. I was drawn in. And that's what Paul is doing with Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, he just holds up a picture of Jesus and says, behold him, be captivated by him in such a way that you don't want to be moved away from him. It's a warning not to be moved away, but the reason is because of who Jesus is. And that's really the structure of the entire book of Colossians, but it's also the structure of the paragraph that we're going to look at this morning in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Paul is going to give a warning in verse 8. Then he's going to give a reason for the warning in verses 9 through 15. And so I want you to look at the text together with me, beginning in verse 8. I want you to see the warning that Paul gives. Verse 8, he says, be careful, right? Watch out that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. Paul is saying there is a philosophy out there that is looking to capture you. And he says, don't be kidnapped by it. Don't be kidnapped by this worldview that seeks to draw you away from Jesus. The reality is, folks, there are all kinds of philosophies, theologies, ideologies, and worldviews in our world today that will seek to lure you from Christ. And Paul's warning here is very clear, don't be kidnapped by it. 
Now, he's not talking about philosophy in general. In the Greek New Testament, he uses the definite article. Literally, don't be captured by the philosophy, the philosophy. What is the philosophy that he's referring to, right? This is not just a, uh, you know, he's not throwing all of you philosophy majors under the bus. He's talking about a particular philosophy. The particular philosophy is the one that was inundating the church at Colossae, this philosophy that said that you need more than Jesus to find fulfillment in your life that you need Jesus plus something else. That philosophy, the one that was threatening the church, Paul says, don't be kidnapped by that, by this philosophy that seeks to diminish Christ. Be on your guard not to be captivated by philosophies or theologies or ideologies or worldviews that would lure you away from Jesus and who He is. Notice how he describes the philosophy. He says in verse 8, it is empty deceit. Deceit means deception. It, it appears one way. It makes certain promises to you. But in reality, it's deceptive. It's, it looks full, but in reality, it's empty. And there are philosophies of this world that will present themselves to you that look full. They look satisfying. They look like they can make and fulfill all kinds of promises to you, but they are deceptive and they are, they are empty. In West Texas, <clears throat> you learn never to trust a cloud. If you get a cloud here in East Texas, the likelihood of rain is high. But in West Texas where it very, very rarely rains, you might see a cloud and you get your hopes up. It's going to rain. And don't get your hopes up. Never trust a cloud because it's probably not going to rain. It looks full, but it's really empty. Paul says this philosophy that draws you from Christ looks satisfying, but in reality it's empty. Then he says it's based on human tradition. In other words, this philosophy that seeks to draw you from Christ is based on human ideas. Not God's revelation, right? There are lots of things that people will tell you will bring fulfillment in your life, but so many of them are human ideas. If you walk down after you finish getting your cigarettes at the grocery store, that's a joke, um, <laughs> you walk down the magazine aisle and you will see cover after cover that promises you what will bring fulfillment, but it's based on human ideas. Paul says this philosophy is based on human tradition, not God's revelation. And then he says it's based on the, the elements of the world, not Christ. The word elements here is an obscure word in the Greek New Testament, but it means something like the principles of this world or the ideas of this world. This philosophy that says Jesus plus something else equals fulfillment is not based on Christ. It is the world's ideas. And here's the deal. Only God knows what will bring you fullness in your life. So Paul says, watch out. Be on guard not to be kidnapped, not to be captivated by any other lesser substitute than Jesus. But then he gives us a reason for that. In fact, he gives us two reasons for it in verses 9 through 15. Why should you be careful not to be captivated? Well, he's going to hold up two things. Number one, he's going to say, because of who Jesus is, you shouldn't be captivated by anything else. And then secondly, because of what Jesus has done, you shouldn't be captivated by anything else. So these two reasons, the person of Jesus, who he is, 
and the work of Jesus, what he has done. Paul says, consider who Jesus is. Consider what he has done. And it will help you not to be captivated by any other lesser substitute. And so that's the reason for the warning. And I want to just walk through that together. First of all, I want you to consider who Jesus is. As we are warned not to turn to other substitutes, not to be kidnapped by other ideologies, why should we be careful about that? Well, first of all, because of who Jesus is. Who you consider Jesus to be will determine everything in your life. A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And, And I would say that what you think of when you think of Jesus is the most important thing about you. Who is Jesus? Well, our culture has a lot of viewpoints about who Jesus is. Camille Paglia, the comedian, she had a particular view of who Jesus is. She said, Jesus was a brilliant Jewish stand-up comedian, a phenomenal improviser. His parables are great one-liners. Mikhail Gorbachev, some of you will remember him, said, Jesus was the first socialist. Thomas Jefferson said about Jesus, quote, Jesus did not mean to impose himself on mankind as the Son of God. Prince Philip once said, Jesus might be described as an underprivileged working class victim of political and religious persecution. Muslims view Jesus as a prophet. Secularists view Jesus as a good example or teacher. Deepak Chopra said that Jesus is a state of consciousness to which we should all aspire. If you look on social media, you can see t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy. And it's worn by people like Oprah and Madonna and Brad Pitt. Who is Jesus truly? Well, thank you for asking. Look at what the text says. Look at what God's word has to say about Jesus's identity. Verses 9 and 10 Right? He says, be careful that no one takes you captive. Why? Verse 9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. So this text tells us three things about Jesus' person, his identity, who he is. First of all, it tells us about his divinity. The text tells us that the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ. What that means is that Jesus is nothing less than God himself. The fullness of God's nature dwells in Jesus. That means that Jesus is more than mere man, which is where our culture wants to put him. They want to say he's a great man, a good man, a moral man, maybe a special man, a unique man, but just man. Paul says God's fullness, the fullness of the person of God, the nature of God, the character of God is in Christ. If you want to see what the God who cannot be seen is like, then look at Jesus. Because when you see Jesus, you see God. One person, two natures. Fully God, fully man. Not 50% God, 50% man. Not sort of like God or sort of like man. He is 100% God, 100% man. The fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ. Paul uses that word that he used in chapter 1 for fullness. It's the word pleroma. 
pleroma, the fullness of deity. The pleroma described the system in the Greco-Roman world of 30 deities. This is the gods that they worshiped. They called it the fullness of deity, the pleroma. Paul robs that word and says, you've been worshiping all of these idols, all of these gods, the system, the fullness, the pleroma of deity. But I'm here to tell you that God's fullness is not found in the idols of this world. God's fullness is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. He is the fullness of deity. What a powerful statement in a culture in the first century where Caesar, the Roman emperor, was referred to as the God of gods on inscriptions, on statues, and on buildings, and on coins. If you saw the image of Caesar, the Romans said about Caesar that he was the God of gods, and Paul says, no, it is Jesus and Jesus alone. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. And here's why that matters. If Jesus is just another teacher, if he is mere man, then you can take him or leave him. But if Jesus is the God of the universe, the one through whom all things were made and for whom all things exist, then you, listen, he deserves nothing short of all of your allegiance and all of your loyalty and all of your love. He is divine. Second thing the text tells us about his identity is about his sufficiency. In verse 10, it says, and you have been filled by him. The one who is filled with the fullness of God, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells, is the one who can fill you fully. Paul says, who is Jesus? He is the one in whom God's fullness dwells, and he is the one who can fill you to the full. He is perfectly sufficient. Think about that. If all God's fullness dwells in Christ and I am in Christ, then I can be filled with all the fullness of God. Folks, nothing can fill you like Jesus. No one can satisfy you like Jesus. The reality is all of us look to created things to fill our life. We think that if we accumulate enough creatures and created things and creaturely type things, that we will find fullness And Paul says fullness is found in Jesus. He is the one who is sufficient. He can fill your life. But then he tells us about Jesus' authority. That's the third aspect of Jesus' identity we see in the text. In verse 10, he is the head over every ruler and authority. Who is Jesus? He is the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells. He is the one who fills you. But he is the head over every ruler and authority. This is the language Paul uses in Colossians chapter 1, that he is Lord over all creation, that he is Lord over the church. Now he uses the word kephale, the head. It translates literally chief. He is the chief over every ruler and authority. Just imagine the most powerful rulers of this world, the most powerful authorities over this world, Jesus is head over all rulers and authority. He is chief. He is higher than any prince, pope, potentate, or president. Jesus is above every ruler, every authority, every power, every force of this world. He is stronger than any storm. He is capable in any catastrophe. He is triumphant over any threat. Jesus is head 
over all. Jesus said this about his own authority in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so who is Jesus exactly? Well, he is, he is God himself. He is the one who will fill you with the fullness of God. And he is the one who is authoritative over every earthly power. So don't be kidnapped by any ideology that would seek to diminish him from who he really is. Consider who he is. But now Paul gives us a second reason not to be kidnapped by other philosophies or theologies or ideologies that seek to diminish him. And that is because of what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done. And that's what we see in verses 11 through 15. Consider what Jesus has done for you. Paul begins to shift here in these verses to describe the work of Jesus in the cross and the resurrection. And he's holding Jesus up to us and Jesus' work to say, behold Christ, be captivated by his beauty so that you're not captivated by anything else. Look at the work of the cross. You know, the cross is, is one of the most recognizable, familiar images in the world. You can find the cross on keychains. You can find the cross in, in churches. You can find the cross on rosaries. You can find the cross hanging on grandma's wall in embroidery. The cross is everywhere. And, but the Bible tells us that the cross is the centerpiece and the climax of human history. In fact, the, the great British theologian John Stott once said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. And that's what Paul is talking about in verses 11 through 15, God on the cross. And what I want you to consider is why God was on the cross. What was Jesus doing on the cross? What is the cross all about? If you're here today or you're watching online and you're not a Christian, you say, what's, what's the deal with the cross? Well, I want you to consider, think with me deeply here about verses 11 through 15, because Paul is going to use three images to explain to us what's happening on the cross of Jesus. Now, he's going to use these images. These are, these are foreign images to us. He's going to use uh, three word pictures that uh, would have been very common in the first century, not so common to us today, but I want you to think about them because Paul is using these to help us understand what's happening on the cross. Paul is going to use the word picture of circumcision He's going to use the word picture of what he calls a certificate of debt. And then he's going to use the word picture of a Roman triumph parade. He's going to use these three to hold Jesus up to us as glorious and majestic. So we'd be captivated by his work and not captivated by anything else. So the first image that he uses here is the word picture of circumcision. Now I know all of you were really excited to come to church today. Sunday before Thanksgiving to talk about circumcision. That's what Paul's talking about, so that's what we're going to talk about, all right? So let's look at verses 11 and 12. You were, Paul tells us verse 11, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands. Okay, so this tells us Paul's not just speaking literally here. He's not speaking of a literal circumcision. He's, he's using circumcision as a metaphor, a way of talking about the cross, and what happens on the cross. 
It's a circumcision not done with human hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. What's Paul talking about here? Well, when Paul uses the word circumcision, here's what circumcision means, right? Circumcision was an Old Testament sign of God's covenant people, okay? So if you were a a member of God's covenant people, Israel, in the Old Testament, if you were male, you would be circumcised. It was a physical sign of a spiritual reality. It was a physical marker that marked a spiritual reality in your life, not unlike baptism for the church today. So, I mean, you do physically to mark a spiritual reality. And here's what circumcision meant. The the word circumcised means simply to be cut off, to be cut off or to be separated. And this physical marker for God's people, it was a physical marker that communicated to the world that the Israelites were cut off for God, that they were separated for Him, that they were set apart for Him. That's exactly what it means to be called a holy one or a saint. It means somebody who is set apart for God. And circumcision was the way of of showing the world that you belonged to God, that you were cut off for Him. Now, Paul says, you believers, you have been circumcised in the circumcision of Christ. Now, he's using a word play here. Here's what Paul is communicating. He's saying, you are cut off for God because Jesus was cut off for you. You were circumcised to God because Jesus was circumcised for you. Jesus was cut off for you. That's the imagery here, the stripping off of the body of flesh, the circumcision of Christ. That's just a metaphorical way of describing the death of Christ. Because Jesus died for you, because his flesh was ripped, because he was torn apart on the cross, you can be circumcised unto him. You can be cut off for God. Paul's saying, because of what Christ has done for you in being cut off for you, you can be cut off for God. And because Jesus was cut off for you, you'll never be cut off from God. Now, understand the impact of this statement. You need to understand a little bit about your Old Testament. So I want you to think back to the book of Deuteronomy for a moment, because in Deuteronomy, God gives His people the law, and He says, hey, this is how I'm going to relate with you. Here's here's my law, and you're going to keep it. And if you'll keep it, I'm going to make some promises, right? And so in Deuteronomy, like 28, 29, 30, God says essentially this to, to Israel, if you obey me, then I'll bless you. If you disobey me, then I will curse you. So you get blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. If you obey God, you'll be his people. He'll bless you. If you disobey him, you'll be cut off from him forever. To use the language of Numbers 6, which is the priestly prayer of Aaron, right? You all know this. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord, say it with me, cause his face to shine on you and give you peace. Here's the deal. If Israel obeyed, then God's face of blessing was turned toward them. If they disobeyed, he would turn his face of blessing away from them and they would be cut off from him forever. 
What's happening on the cross of Jesus is that God is turning his wrath for our disobedience in upon himself in the death of his son so that Jesus, who was perfectly obedient and deserves blessing, instead receives cursing, not for his disobedience, but for our disobedience, so that all of us who were disobedient and deserve cursing can receive the blessing associated with his obedience. That's what theologians call the great exchange. It's what they mean when they talk about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. What they mean is that Jesus received my curse so that I can receive his blessing, that he was cut off for me so that I can be cut off for him and never be cut off from him. That's what's happening on the cross. Jesus is taking the curse that we deserve for our disobedience so that we can receive the blessing that he deserved for his obedience. It means that God can treat us as if we were obedient because he treated his son as if he was disobedient. So that God can turn his face of blessing toward you. We deserve to be cut off from him forever but because Jesus was cut off for us on the cross, God can turn that face of blessing toward us because Christ took the curse of our sin. That's exactly what Galatians chapter 3 tells us. Galatians 3 verses 13 and 14, listen to God's word. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us, because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, why did God do that? Look at verse 14. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you see what's happening? Jesus takes my curse so that I can receive the promised blessing. Are you all awake this morning? If y'all were Pentecostals, you would be running up and down these aisles right now. Hello, he received your curse, which means you don't have to receive that curse anymore. You can receive the blessing of God on your life, the face of God's blessing because he received the curse for you. That's what the cross is all about. He received the curse, so we receive the blessing. He was treated as disobedient so that we can be treated as obedient. That's the first image that Paul uses, but there's a second one, a second word picture. It's the certificate of debt, the certificate of debt. And you see it in verses 13 and 14. Just look down here at the text. Verse 13, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. To trespass means to transgress God's law. It means to cross a boundary. We've crossed the boundary of God's law. We have sinned, and yet God can forgive us. How can he forgive us? Look at verse 14. This is the means of our redemption. He erased the certificate of debt. There it is. With its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Well, what's this talking about? What's a certificate of debt? Well, this is a, a first century thing. Okay, it's unfamiliar to our ears, but... Everyone who read the book of Colossians would understand what this is about. If you committed a crime in the ancient world, you got arrested for it, you'd be put in jail, 
and above your cell would be a, what was called a certificate of debt. The certificate of debt did two things. It listed your crimes and your obligations to the law. So if you stole a loaf of bread, it would say thief. And then it would explain the way that you were obligated to pay that debt off. It was a certificate of debt. And so, you know, you have to spend six months in jail or something like that. So it branded you. It was a, a scarlet letter of sorts that said guilty, lawbreaker, and this is the debt that is owed until they can be freed. Now, Paul borrows that language, and he says what's happening in the work of Jesus for us is, if you will, every single person who has transgressed God's law has hanging over our heads a certificate of debt. Uh, there, there is a listing of our crimes. There is a listing of our guilt and our failure, as well as our obligations and our debts that we owe. Some of you understand what that feels like. Some of you, you say, man, I, I have messed up so badly. It just feels like it's just hanging over my head. You feel like you're walking around with a scarlet letter that just says guilty, that says shame. Paul says, here's what's happening on the cross. Every single one of us has a certificate of debt hanging over the cell of our life, what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's taking our certificate of debt that is above our head. God is taking it away and putting it above Christ's head and he takes it away, nailing it to the cross so that the debt you owe is paid by Jesus. That's what's happening on the cross. That Jesus who was innocent is being treated as guilty so that those of us who are guilty can be treated as innocent. And on the cross, Jesus is paying a debt he did not owe. He's paying a debt we could not pay. And he removes our guilt from us. I love the language Paul uses. He's taken it away. Certificate of debt that was against us, that was opposed to us. Just think here, pointing its finger in our face saying, guilty. Jesus has taken it from us, and it was put above his head. The Old Testament imagery is of a scapegoat. You remember the image in the Old Testament of a priest who puts his hands on the head of a scapegoat and pronounces the guilt of the people in that goat, and it, it's sent out, taking away their guilt outside the camp. Paul says, this is what Christ has done on the cross, so that he can... The language he uses here, he can erase our debt. Uh, if you were translating this today, you might say delete. Deletes our debt. The, the word Paul actually uses is he blots out. He blots out. The reason that he uses that because you didn't have computers or typewriters or laptops in the ancient world. So if you wanted to write something out, like a certificate of debt, you'd have to use a quill and ink and parchment. And if you made a mistake, you couldn't, there's no eraser, there's no backspace, all right? The only way to cover over a mistake was to take the ink and blot it out. That's the word Paul uses. He has blotted out our certificate of debt. He has covered over our sin. He has wiped clean our slate by paying our debt for us in our place. The gospel in four words, Jesus in my place. Imagine that you, uh, 
go out to a nice restaurant for your birthday and you're celebrating, so you want to you order big. So you go to the finest restaurant in town and because you're celebrating, you decide you're going to go big or go home, right? So you order an appetizer. Then you, you say to the waiter, hey, I want the most expensive thing on the menu. We're celebrating tonight. So you order the biggest entree and then you top it off with dessert, right? And you, you are, you're having a great time. You're feasting like a king. You're, you feel like you're on top of the world. You finish all of this food. And then the waiter brings you the, the check. You open it up and, whew, boy, that's a little steep. It's a little pricey, a little more than I anticipated, right? But, you, but it's fine. It's your birthday. You're celebrating. So you reach around to pay for the ticket and you reach for your wallet and then you realize your heart stops, right? Because you forgot your wallet. Just imagine the panic you would feel in that moment. Here's this bill, right? I've been eating like a king. Here's this huge bill. I left my wallet at home. Imagine the embarrassment and the shame. Here's a bill. You have to pay it, but you don't have the resources to pay it. Your wallet's not there. But now imagine that Pastor Andy happens to be at that restaurant. He's been watching you the whole time. He's watched you order that appetizer. He watched you order that entree. He watched you gorge yourself on the dessert. He's just been judging you the whole meal. (laughs) And now he's watched the embarrassment as the bill comes, and you don't have your wallet. You can't pay it. But but Andy loves Jesus, and he loves you. So he says, hey, uh, they're on me tonight. Bring me their bill. I've got them. And Pastor Andy pays for his food, but he also pays your bill. And see, the, the debt has been paid for you, not by you. It's something that you owed but could not pay, but someone could pay for you. That's exactly why Jesus died on the cross for you. Because we had a debt that we owed that we could not pay, and yet Jesus had the resources to pay for it in our place. That's what's happening on the cross. I love the way Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, it seemed as if hell were put into his cup. And with one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. Aren't you thankful? There's one third and final image that Paul uses. Do you want to hear it? Are you all awake this morning? He uses the word picture of a Roman triumph parade. A Roman triumph. Triumph parade. Listen, if Jesus had stayed on the cross, it would have looked like he had lost and those who put him on the cross had won. And we know a dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. But folks, the story doesn't end in Jesus' defeat on the cross, but God's victory through Jesus on the cross. A.W. Tozer put it this way, that he conquered death by allowing death to conquer him. And that victory is demonstrated through the resurrection. And Paul uses one more illustration to make this point. It's the illustration of a Roman triumph parade. Look at verse 15. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. Literally, he put them to an open shame. How? Because he triumphed. Notice that word, he triumphed over them in him. 
Now, I want you to think about that word triumph because once more, Paul is borrowing a language that everyone in that culture would have been familiar. He's borrowing the language of a Roman triumph parade. Now, you say, what's a Roman triumph parade about, right? Thanksgiving Day, well, Thanksgiving Day, Macy's Day parade, right, in New York City with the big floats and that kind of thing. We have been parading people for a long, long time. If you go, rewind 2,000 years to Rome, in, in Rome, if a... Roman general had gone to another country and vanquished a foe, defeated an enemy, that Roman general would return to Rome and all the whole city would come out to celebrate the victory. They would, they would line the streets, they would throw flowers in front of the Roman general and what the Roman general would do is that he would parade all of the spoils of war in front of his victor's chariot. And so all of the precious jewels of the conquered nation, all of the exotic animals of the conquered nation, and then finally, the last thing to be paraded through in this triumph parade would be the conquered, defeated generals of this foreign country. And they would be stripped naked, they would be put in chains, and they would be paraded through the streets of Rome in front of the conquering Roman general riding on his victor's chariot, and all the people would celebrate a defeated foe that was publicly disgraced. Now, Paul says, on the cross, it looked as if Jesus had been put to public shame. He was stripped naked. His flesh was stripped off. It looked as if in a public display, he had been conquered. And then he was buried. And for three days of silence, it looked like the battle was lost. But folks, three days later, God burst the tomb open. Jesus rose victorious from the grave. And Paul says he is parading that conquered foe, death. And we get to celebrate his triumph over death. That's the work of Christ. Not just dying for our sins, not just being cut off for us, not just paying our debt, but putting death to death. Publicly shaming death, triumphing over the rulers and the authorities. I love the way 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, puts this in, in uh, verses 24 through 26. It says, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Jesus triumphed in the resurrection over death. My favorite professor, Roy Metz, said, it's through the resurrection that Christ's cross became his victor's chariot. That's the work of Jesus. That is what he has done in the cross and the resurrection. Amen? So what does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with you? Well, I want to just point out a couple of things. I'm done preaching, I promise. But let me just point out Three benefits when you choose to abandon living life for you and instead choose Jesus. Benefit number one, you move from death to life. Verse 13, when you were dead 
in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him. Without Jesus, we are like the walking dead. We are dead men walking. And we have no life. But when you come to this one in whom the fullness of deity dwells, when you come to this one who can fill you with God's fullness, when you come to this one who is head over all rule and authority, when you come to this one who was cut off for you, when you come to this one who took your certificate of debt, when you come to this one who's triumphed over death, you move from death to life. Number two, you move from guilt to forgiveness. Verse 13, he forgave us all our trespasses. Jesus cut off for us so that we can be cut off for him. Jesus treated as guilty so we can be treated as innocent. Jesus did this for you so that even though all of us are guilty, we can move from that place of guilt to that place where our sins are blotted out and our guilt is taken away from us. You you can move from guilt to forgiveness because all debts have been paid in full by Christ. Your debt has been canceled. Your sin has been forgiven. Here's the third and final thing. When you choose Jesus, you move from emptiness to satisfaction. That's what verse 10 is about. You are filled by him. This one that we have been beholding in his person, his work, he can fill your life. Blaise Pascal says, that everyone has a God-shaped hole in the human heart. And we're just constantly trying to stuff that with stuff. We think if I just get that job that I want, I'll finally be fulfilled. If I just get that relationship I want, I'll finally be satisfied. If I just get that pay raise or the car or I pay off that debt, then finally I'll be happy. And we're just trying to fill the hole in our heart with all this creaturely stuff but that was a hole created to be filled by the creator. And when you come to Jesus, you can move from emptiness to satisfaction. Jesus can fill the hole in your heart that no conceivable trinket on earth can fill. Nothing can satisfy you. Nothing can bring you fulfillment. Nothing can fill your life like Jesus. He is the pleroma. He is the fullness of deity. And he can take your broken and empty life and fill it to overflowing. Amy and I used to live in New Mexico, and we lived in a desert oil field town. The water was terrible because there's caliche in the ground, and so that caliche would come through in the water. So we had to go get these big bottles and go fill up these water bottles uh, at like a water still. The thing that was really annoying about that is that they never lasted, so like three or four times a week, we'd have to get those empty bottles and take them back to the water place to get clean water to drink. It was like, I just never could, it, it, I never could have a, a bottle that just stayed full. It just was constantly draining. And so much of our life is spent trying to fill our life with something that won't ever really satisfy, won't really ever fill, something that always needs to be refilled. But when you come to Jesus... You will drink from a well where you will never thirst again. It is a well that will never run dry. You will be filled with something where you don't have to keep getting filled up. 
He fills you to the full, and it is final. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus in that way, let me just extend an invitation to come and drink, to come enjoy the greatest gift known to man. And that is a gift of relationship with the God of the universe. If you've never made the decision to trust Jesus, turn from everything else, any other lesser substitute, stop being captivated by this world. Instead, be captivated by Jesus. Why not make that decision today? In a moment when our service ends, you can go out to the lobby. We have decision prayer partners. They're wearing badges so you can identify them. And they would love to sit down with you and explain what it means to move from death to life, from emptiness to satisfaction, from guilt to forgiveness. You just go out there and say, I want to know more about Jesus, and they'll talk with you about that today. And if you're here today and you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, church, celebrate. Let's pray together. Lord, how wonderful are your works in all the earth. We praise you for who you are, for what you've done. Help us to be captivated by your beauty. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.